Section four of Italian Hours by Henry James. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. The Grand Canal, part one. The honour of representing the plan and the place at their best might perhaps appear in the city of St. Mark, properly to belong to the splendid square which bears the patron's name and which is the centre of Venetian life. So far, this is pretty well all the way, indeed, as Venetian life is a matter of strolling and chaffering, of gossiping and gaping, of circulating without a purpose and of staring, too often with a foolish one, through the shop windows of dealers whose hospitality makes their doorsteps dramatic, at the very vulgarest rubbish in all the modern market. If the Grand Canal, however is not quite technically a street. The perverted piazza is perhaps even less normal. And I hasten to add that I am glad not to find myself studying my subject under the international arcades, or yet I'll go the length of saying in the solemn presence of the church. For indeed in that case I foresee I should become still more confoundingly conscious of the stumbling block that inevitably, even with his first few words, crops up in the path of the lover of Venice who rashly addresses himself to expression. Venetian life is a mere literary convention, though it be an indispensable figure. The words have played an effective part in the literature of sensibility. They constituted thirty years ago the title of Mr. Howell's delightful volume of impressions. But in using them today, one owes some frank amends to one's own lucidity. Let me carefully premise, therefore, that so often as they shall again drop from my pen, so often shall I beg to be regarded as systematically superficial. Venetian life in the large, old sense has long since come to an end, and the essential present character of the most melancholy of cities resides simply in its being the most beautiful of tombs. Nowhere else has the past been laid to rest with such tenderness, such a sadness of resignation and remembrance. Nowhere else is the present so alien, so discontinuous, so like a crowd in a cemetery without garlands for the graves. It has no flowers in its hands, but as a compensation perhaps, and the thing is doubtless more to the point, it has money and little red books. The everlasting shuffle of these irresponsible visitors in the piazza is contemporary Venetian life, Everything else is only a reverberation of that. The vast mausoleum has a turnstile at the door, and a functionary in a shabby uniform lets you in as per tariff to see how dead it is. From this constatation, this cold curiosity, proceed all the industry, the prosperity, the vitality of the place. The shopkeepers and gondoliers, the beggars and the models, depend upon it for a living. They are the custodians and the ushers of the great museum. They are even themselves, to a certain extent, the objects of exhibition. 
it is in the wide vestibule of the square that the polyglot pilgrims gather most densely. Piazza San Marco is the lobby of the opera in the intervals of the performance. The present fortune of Venice, the lamentable difference, is most easily measured there, and that is why in the effort to resist our pessimism we must turn away both from the purchasers and from the vendors of ricordi. The ricordi that we prefer are gathered best where the gondola glides. Best of all, on the noble waterway that begins in its glory at the Salute and ends in its abasement at the railway station. It is, however, the cognified piazzetta, who give me shade of St. Theodore, has not a brand new café begun to glare there electrically this very year, that introduces us most directly to the great picture by which the Grand Canal works its first spell, and to which a thousand artists, not always with a talent apiece, have paid their tribute. We pass into the piazzetta to look down the great throat, as it were, of Venice, and the vision must console us for turning our back on St. Mark's. We have been treated to it again and again, of course, even if we have never stirred from home. But that is only a reason the more for catching at any freshness that may be left in the world of photography. It is in Venice, above all, that we hear the small buzz of this vulgarising voice of the familiar. Yet perhaps it is in Venice, too, that the picturesque fact has best mastered the pious secret of how to wait for us. Even the classic Salute waits like some great lady on the threshold of her saloon. She is more ample and serene, more seated at her door, than all the copyists have told us, with her domes and scrolls, her scalloped buttresses and statues forming a pompous crown, and her wide steps disposed on the ground like the train of a rope. This fine air of the woman of the world is carried out by the well-bred assurance with which she looks in the direction of her old-fashioned Byzantine neighbour, and the juxtaposition of the two churches, so distinguished and so different, each splendid in its sort, is a sufficient mark of the scale and range of Venice. However, we ourselves are looking away from St. Mark's. We must blind our eyes to that dazzle. Without it, indeed, there are brightnesses and fascinations enough. We see them in abundance even while we look away from the shady steps of the Salute. These steps are cool in the morning, yet I don't know that I can justify my excessive fondness for them any better than I explain a hundred of the other vague infatuations with which Venice sophisticates the spirit. Under such an influence, fortunately, one needn't explain. It keeps account of nothing but perceptions and affections. It is from the Salute steps, perhaps of a summer morning, that this view of the open mouth of the city is most brilliantly amusing. The whole thing composes, as if composition were the chief end of human institutions. The charming architectural promontory of the Logana stretches out the most graceful of arms, balancing in its hand 
the gilded globe on which revolves the delightful satirical figure of the little weather clock of a woman. This fortune, this navigation, or whatever she is called, she surely needs no name, catches the wind in the bit of drapery of which she has divested her rotary bronze loveliness. On the other side of the canal twinkles and glitters the long row of the happy palaces, which are mainly expensive hotels. There is a little of everything everywhere in the bright Venetian air, but to these houses belongs especially the appearance of sitting across the water at the receipt of custom, of watching in their hypocritical loveliness for the stranger and the victim. I call them happy because even their sordid uses and their vulgar signs melt somehow with their vague sea-stained pinks and drabs into that strange gaiety of light and colour which is made up of the reflection of superannuated things. The atmosphere plays over them like a laugh. They are of the essence of the sad old joke. They are almost as charming from other places as they are from their own balconies, and share fully in that universal privilege of Venetian objects, which consists of being both the picture and the point of view. This double character, which is particularly strong in the Grand Canal, adds a difficulty to any control of one's notes. The Grand Canal may be practically as in impression, the cushioned balcony of a high and well-loved palace, the memory of irresistible evenings, of the sociable elbow, of the endless lingering and looking. Or it may evoke the restlessness of a fresh curiosity, of methodical inquiry in a gondola piled with references. There are no references I ought to mention in the present remarks, which sacrificed to accident, not to completeness. A rhapsody of Venice is always in order, but I think the catalogues are finished. I should not attempt to write here the names of all the palaces, even if the number of those I find myself able to remember in the immense array were less insignificant. There are many I delight in that I don't know, or at least don't keep apart. Then there are the bad reasons for preference that are better than the good, and all the sweet bribery of association and recollection. These things, as one stands on the salute steps, are so many delicate fingers to pick straight out of the row, a dear little featureless house, which with its pale green shutters looks straight across at the great door, and through the very keyhole, as it were, of the church, and which I needn't call by a name, a pleasant American name, that everyone in Venice these many years has had on grateful lips. It is the very friendliest house in all the wide world, and it has, as it deserves to have, the most beautiful position. It is a real porto di mare, as the gondoliers say, a port within a port. It sees everything that comes and goes, and takes it all in with practised eyes. Not a tint or a hint of the immense iridescence is lost upon it, and there are days of exquisite colour on which it may fancy itself the heart of the wonderful prism. 
we wave to it from the salute steps, which we must decidedly leave if we wish to get on a grateful hand across the water and turn into the big white church of Longana, an empty shaft beneath a perfunctory dome, where an American family and a German party huddled in a corner upon a pair of benches are gazing with a conscientiousness worthy of a better cause, yet nothing in particular. For there is nothing particular in this cold and conventional temple to gaze at, save the great Tintoretto of the sacristy, to which we quickly pay our respects, and which we are glad to have for ten minutes to ourselves. The picture, though full of beauty, is not the finest of the masters, but it serves again as well as another to transport. There is no other word. Those of his lovers for whom in faraway days when Venice was an early rapture, this strange and mystifying painter was almost the supreme revelation. The plastic arts may have less to say to us than in the hungry years of youth, and the celebrated picture in general to be more of a blank. But more than the others, any fine tintoret still carries us back, calling up not only the rich particular vision, but the freshness of the old wonder. Many things come and go, but this great artist remains for us in Venice a part of the company of the mind. The others are there in their obvious glory, but he is the only one for whom the imagination, in our expressive modern phrase, sits up. The marriage in Cana at the Salute has all his characteristic and fascinating unexpectedness. The sacrifice of the figure of our Lord, who is reduced to the mere final point of a clever perspective, and the free joyous presentation of all the other elements of the feast. Why... In spite of this queer one-sidedness, does the picture give us no impression of a lack of what the critics call reverence? For of no other reason that I can think of than because it happens to be the work of its author, in whose very mistakes there is a singular wisdom. Mr. Ruskin has spoken with sufficient eloquence of the serious loveliness of the row of heads of the women on the right, who talk to each other as they sit at the foreshortened banquet. There could be no better example of the roving independence of the painter's vision, a real spirit of adventure for which his subject was always a cluster of accidents, not an obvious order, but a sort of peopled and agitated chapter of life, in which the figures are submissive pictorial notes. These notes are all there in their beauty and heterogeneity, and if the abundance is of a kind to make the principle of selection seem in comparison timid, yet the sense of composition in the spectator, if it happened to exist, reaches out to the painter in peculiar sympathy. Dull must be the spirit of the worker tormented in any field of art with that particular question who is not moved to recognise in the eternal problem the high fellowship of Tintoretto. If the long reach from this point to the deplorable iron bridge which discharges the pedestrian at the academy, or more comprehensively, to the painted and gilded gothic of the noble Palazzo Foscari, is too much of a curve to be seen at any one point as a whole, 
it represents the better the arched neck as it were of the undulating serpent of which the canalazzo has the likeness we pass a dozen historic houses we note in our passage a hundred component bits with the baffled sketches sense and with what would doubtless be save for our intensely venetian fatalism the baffled sketches temper it is the early palaces of course and also to be fair some of the late if we could take them one by one that give the canal the best of its grand air the fairest are often cheek by jowl with the foulest and there are few alas so fair as to have been completely protected by their beauty the ages and the generations have worked their will on them and the wind and the weather have had much to say but disfigured and dishonoured as they are with the bruises of their marbles and the patience of their ruin there is nothing like them in the world and the long succession of their faded conscious faces makes of the quiet waterway they overhang a promenade historique of which the lesson however often we read it gives in the depth of its interest an incomparable dignity to venice we read it in the romanesque arches crooked today in their very curves of the early middle age in the exquisite individual gothic of the splendid time and in the cornices and columns of a decadence almost as proud these things at present are almost equally touching in their good faith they have each in their degree so effectually parted with their pride they have lived on as they could and lasted as they might and we hold them to no account of their infirmities for even those of them whose blank eyes today meet criticism with most submission are far less vulgar than the uses we have managed to put them to we have botched them and patched them and covered them with sordid signs we have restored and improved them with a merciless taste and the best of them we have made over to the peddlers some of the most striking objects in the finest vistas at present are the huge advertisements of the curiosity shops the antiquity mongers in venice have all the courage of their opinion and it is easy to see how well they know they can confound you with an unanswerable question what is the whole place but a curiosity shop and what are you here for yourself but to pick up odds and ends we pick them up for you say these honest jews whose prices are marked in dollars and who shall blame us if the flowers being pretty well plucked we add an artificial rose or two to the composition of the bouquet they take care in a word that there be plenty of relics and their establishments are huge and active they administer the antidote to pedantry and you can complain of them only if you never cross their thresholds if you take this step you are lost for you have parted with the correctness of your attitude venice becomes frankly from such a moment the big depressing dazzling joke in which after all our sense of her contradiction sinks to rest the grimace of an overstrained philosophy it is rather a comfort for the 
curiosity shops are amusing. You've had bad moments, indeed, as you stand in their halls of humbug and, in the intervals of haggling, hear through the high windows the soft splash of the sea on the old water steps. For you think with anger of the noble homes that are laid waste in such scenes, of the delicate lives that must have been, that might still be, led there. You reconstruct the admirable house according to your own needs. Leaning on a back balcony, you drop your eyes into one of the little green gardens with which, for the most part, such establishments are exasperatingly blessed, and end by feeling it a shame that you yourself are not in possession. I take it for granted, of course, that as you go and come, you are in imagination perpetually lodging yourself and setting up your gods, for if this innocent pastime, this borrowing of the mind, be not your favourite sport, there is a flaw in the appeal that Venice makes to you. There may be happy cases in which your envy is tempered, or perhaps I should rather say intensified, by real participation. If you have had the good fortune to enjoy the hospitality of an old Venetian home, and to lead your life a little in the painted chambers that still echo with one of the historic names, you have entered by the shortest step into the inner spirit of the place. If it didn't savour of treachery to private kindness, I should like to speak frankly of one of these delightful, even though alienated, structures, to refer to it as a splendid example of the old palatial type. But I can only do so in passing with a hundred precautions, and lifting the curtain at the edge, drop a commemorative word on the success with which in this particularly happy instance the cosmopolite habit, the modern sympathy, the intelligent, flexible attitude, the latest fruit of time, adjust themselves to the great, gilded, relinquished shell, and try to fill it out. A Venetian palace that has not too grossly suffered, and that is not overwhelming by its mass, makes almost any life graceful that may be led in it. With cultivated and generous contemporary ways, it reveals a pre-established harmony. As you live in it day after day, its beauty and its interest sink more deeply into your spirit. It has its moods and its hours and its mystic voices and its shifting expressions. If in the absence of its masters you have happened to have it to yourself for 24 hours, you will never forget the charm of its haunted stillness. Late on the summer afternoon, for instance, when the call of playing children comes in behind from the campo, nor in the way the old ghosts seem to pass on tiptoe on the marble floors. It gives you practically the essence of the matter that we are considering. For beneath the high balconies, Venice comes and goes, and the particular stretch you command contains all the characteristics. Everything has its turn, from the heavy barges of merchandise pushed by long poles and the patient shoulder, to the floating pavilions of the great serenades. And you may study at your leisure the admirable Venetian arts of managing a boat and organising a spectacle, of the beautiful free stroke with which the gondola, especially when there are two oars, is impelled 
you never in the Venetian scene grow weary. It is always in the picture, and the large profiled action that lets the standing rowers throw themselves forward to a constant recovery has the double value of being at the fag end of greatness, the only energetic note. The people from the hotels are always afloat, and at the hotel pace, the solitary gondolier, like the solitary horseman of the old-fashioned novel, is, I confess, a somewhat melancholy figure. Perched on his poop without a mate, he reenacts perpetually in high relief with his toes turned out the comedy of his odd and charming movement. He always has a little the look of an absent-minded nursery-maid, pushing her small charges in a perambulator. But why should I risk too free a comparison with this picturesque and amiable class are concerned? I delight in their sunburnt complexions and their childish dialect. I know them only by their merits, and I am grossly prejudiced in their favour. They are interesting and touching, and alike in their virtues and their defects, human nature is simplified as with a big effect of brush. Affecting above all is their dependence on the stranger, the whimsical stranger who swims out of their ken, yet whom providence sometimes restores. The best of them, at any rate, are, in their line, great artists. On the swarming feast days, on the strange feast night of the Redentore, their steering is a miracle of ease. The master hands, the celebrities and winners of prizes, you may see them on the private gondolas in spotless white with brilliant sashes and ribbons, and often with very handsome persons, take the right-of-way with pardonable insolence. They penetrate the crush of boats with an authority of their own. The crush of boats, the universal sociable bumping and squeezing is great, when on the summer nights the ladies shriek with alarm, the city pays the fiddlers, and the illuminated barges scattering music and song lead a long train down the canal. The barges used to be rowed in rhythmic strokes, but now they are towed by a steamer. The coloured lamps, the vocalists before the hotels, are not, to my sense, the greatest seduction of Venice, but it would be an uncandid sketch of the canalazzo that shouldn't touch them with indulgence. Taking one nuisance with another, they are probably the prettiest in the world. And if they have in general more magic for the new arrival than for the old Venice lover, they, in any case, at their best, keep up the immemorial tradition. The Venetians have had from the beginning of time the pride of their processions and spectacles, and it is a wonder how with empty pockets they still make a clever show. The carnival is dead, but these are the scraps of its inheritance. Vauxhall on the water is, of course, more Vauxhall than ever, with the good fortune of homemade music and of a mirror that reduplicates and multiplies. The Feast of the Redeemer, the great popular feast of the year, is a wonderful Venetian Vauxhall. All Venice on this occasion takes to the boats for the night and loads them with lamps and provisions. Wedged together in a mass, it sups and sings. Every boat is a floating arbour, a private 
Café Concert. Of all Christian commemorations, it is the most ingenuously and harmlessly pagan. Toward morning, the passengers repair to the Lido, where as the sun rises, they plunge still sociably into the sea. The night of the Redentori has been described, but it will be interesting to have an account from the domestic point of view of its usual morrow. It is mainly an affair of the Judecca, however, which is bridged over from that Saturday to the great church. The pontoons are laid together during the day. It is all done with extraordinary celerity and art, and the bridge is prolonged across the Canalazzo to Santa Maria Zobenigo, which is my only warrant for glancing at the occasion. We glance at it from our palace windows, lengthening our necks a little. As we look up toward the Salute, we see all Venice on the July afternoon, so serried as to move slowly, pour across the temporary footway. It is a flock of very good children, and the bridged canal is their toy. All Venice on such occasions is gentle and friendly. Not even all Venice pushes anyone into the water. End of section 4